Registrations are now open for the 8th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 3rd to the 5th of April 2020. To register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Joining us on the line from Christchurch in New Zealand is Lara Bryden, who's a Sydney naturopath with more than 20 years' experience. She first trained as a naturopathic doctor in Canada and then moved to Sydney back in 2001. Lara is a passionate communicator about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control. Her book, The Period Repair Manual, published by Pan Macmillan and now in its second edition, is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods and provides practical solutions using nutrition, supplements and natural hormones. But I'd like to warmly welcome you to FX Medicine. How are you, Lara? Hi, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Now, this we've spoken with Kira before about researching women in, in um, athletic performance and things like that, which is an absolute travesty in itself. Firstly, women, hormones, exercise and health. Let's talk, tell me, tell us a little bit about that. The political issue of the fact that women have not been studied hmm. in almost every corner of medicine, especially nutritional medicine, especially sports nutrition, women have been left out of the studies because our menstrual cycle makes us trickier to study. And so what scientists decided to do was to study men and then apply that those findings to women. And what we're seeing from more recent research is that wasn't good enough. You know, that doesn't work. No. And that's why many diets fail women. And just take us through a little bit of why women are so different, apart from the obvious, but what yeah. makes women so, A, different, so hard for the scientists to control for, and why don't they? Like, why? What's the big issue? Yeah. You know, I like to kind of uh, flip the script on that and say that women are normal. Women are just fine. Mm. Men are different. <laughs> but a woman's body, which I say is the standard normal version of the human physiology, works on a monthly basis. So we have something called ovulation, which is a very important event, not just for making a baby, not just for periods, but for health. It's how we make our main hormones, estradiol and progesterone. And those hormones are equally important for general health as for women, as, say, testosterone is for men. So, you know, men are different because they make their testosterone every day in a nice little predictable pattern. But as women, we have this unique, I call it, you know, superpower that we make our hormones in a big surge kind of around the middle part of the cycle and you know, the second half of the cycle make progesterone. So that requires a different way of looking at things, a different way of studying. And even Kira and I make the point of potentially just a different way of doing things, mm. maybe e even eating differently in different halves of the menstrual cycle and then having a whole rethink of everything after menopause because, again, that's another completely different situation. So, you know, it's, it's a level of complexity, but it's one that we embrace. Uh, not to split hairs, but, you know, if we wanted to sort of go down that track about um, cycles, well, we all have circadian rhythms as well. So isn't that a confounder to even male research? So, uh, I, you know, I don't get why it's such a big issue. Is it because they just want this control? It's got to be the same. Yeah, it's just about trying to minimise the statistical 
you know, variables. But you make a very good point about circadian rhythm. That's true. And scientists have not been possibly accounting for that as much as they should. So yeah, yeah, there are lots of there are lots of variables. And one sad thing is that to get around the problem of this variable of the menstrual menstrual phase. What a lot of scientists like to do is to put women on the pill, which is today's topic, (laughs) to flatline hormones and therefore erase that variable. Gotcha. So now, you mentioned it before, today's topic, is the female oral contraceptive pill really female castration? This is a bit topical. I know. Oh, yeah. So I, I think I said that to you maybe last time we <laughs> yeah, started. Yeah. Is that's it? A strong way to, it's a strong way to put it. Yeah. Maybe. But, I mean, I use that word because the drugs, I call them steroid drugs. I don't use the word hormone to refer to what's used in hormonal birth control. They're, they're drugs. Yeah, they're drugs. And they, they work by shutting down ovarian function, which is essentially a, you know, a type of chemical castration, reversible castration. Mm. Let's just delve a little bit into the history. We don't want to go into a, you know, sort of free 1960s, what was it, the burning of the bra and all that sort of thing, women's lib, where women's lib started. But give us a brief history of the OCP, where it started. What were the sort of the dreams for OCP and what are the realities that it's really led to? Well, I think it's fair to say that the dream was effective contraception for women. And, you know, I think it delivered on that. So, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the history, the part that always gets me is because when they first tried to re- introduce the drugs in the late 50s, and early 60s, it was not legal to take something to prevent pregnancy, which, of course, now seems very strange to us. You know, 60 years later, that just seems barbaric that, you know, women weren't allowed to have access to it for that reason. So what they did in the, with the early pills and the marketing and the legislation or the regulations around the pill is that it was to quote, regulate cycles. It was to, in quotation marks, you know, fix periods or for for period problems. And that what they really meant was wink, wink, you know, give you a bleed so and you're not pregnant. Yeah. But what happened from that was an interesting thing, because I'm sure at the time, the doctors back then knew it wasn't fixing periods in any way. But now, a lot of us seem to think that it does. Somehow, what started as just a cover story or a smoke screen became established as something that a lot of people seem to believe. You know, I, I sort of think of it like the emperor's new clothes situation, you mm. know, that mm. story of, you know, you're walking, we're walking around with this idea that the pill fixes periods, regulates periods, and a few of us are pointing at it and going, actually, no, it doesn't do any of those things. <laughs> it never did. And yeah. the evolution of the, you know, the different types of pill, there's the mini pill, the high dose pill, and, and we can talk about a little yeah. bit about their uses. It, you know, I think evolution is a, you know, not really an accurate term. No. Certainly, the the drugs have changed. There's new, they call them generations of, which I think is a strange word to use. It's really just different drugs. Actually, some of the the modern progestin drugs are actually more dangerous, have a higher blood clot risk than some of the original ones. So it, there isn't as much progress as the word generation makes it sound like there is. And so, you know, we have different types, whether you combine it with the synthetic, you know, what's called ethanol estradiol. It's not, it's not actual estrogen or, and one of various number of progestin drugs, or you can use progestin drugs on their own. You can now, of course, you know, have an injection or a ring, but those are all really just delivering different delivery methods for the same drugs. 
And what does the OCP do to a woman's hormonal signaling, both short and long term? It shuts down hormones. Mm. It, it shuts them down. Like it, it um, suppresses ovarian function, suppresses the communication between the brain and the ovaries. And the the my main issue with it, of course, you know, there's blood clot risk, there's breast cancer risk that we know now. There's a depression risk associated with those drugs. But my biggest concern as a clinician and a human being and looking at, you know, all my sister women in the world is that it robs women of the hormones, specifically progesterone, that women need for long-term health. There's a reproductive endocrinologist out of Canada, out of the University of British Columbia in Canada, who, Dr. Professor Geraldine Pryor, she helped me with my book, Period Repair Manual, and she has... She's been a champion of progesterone. She's a, re- a scientist and a researcher as well as a clinician. And she makes the statement, and I'm willing to believe her, you know, I'm, I'm following her lead on this, that 30 years of natural cycling, so 30 years of ovulation and progesterone through our lifetime is valuable because all of that progesterone helps to prevent cardiovascular disease, prevent dementia, potentially prevent breast cancer. She has some documents where she lists all those potential long-term benefits. So her key message, and also mine, is that ovulation and ovarian function is not just to make a baby, but for the general long-term health of the woman. Well, and with regard to women and hormones, our bodies, because of evolution, yes, are calibrated Hmm. to have that estradiol and progesterone, those real actual hormones present, they signal mitochondria, they are very active in the brain, you know, they have all these downstream effects on the body because the body expects to have them there. Yeah. The body did not expect to have them just shut off and replaced with a drug called levongestrol for 30 years, for example. What about direct nutrient depletions as well? Yeah, look, you know, there's all sorts of downstream effects because of, because Hormones are powerful, therefore these steroid drug drugs, analog, hormone analogs are powerful. They have different effects on the body compared to our own hormones. That's going to ultimately affect lots of things. Like, for example, the steroid drugs affect the microbiome quite dramatically, I believe. And I think that's one of the reasons why nutrient absorption is impaired with the oral contraceptive pill. But, you know, there's other things with the hair loss. Hair loss is one of the ones that I think causes some of the most distress, actually. So the American Hair Loss Association issued a statement less than 10 years ago stating women need to know this, especially anyone with a family history of hair loss needs to know that the main types of hormonal birth control are steroid drugs that are really more similar to testosterone than they are to progesterone and so therefore cause hair loss. And sometimes, uh, you know, if you're on the pill for a number of years, that hair loss will be slow and gradual. Yeah. And it can basically sometimes, well, many times cannot be reversed. So that is, a, for many women, a heavy cost to pay. Yeah. If they didn't, weren't told of that, right? No. You know, it would be different if they went into... A little patiently, never talks about that, what little chestnut. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so some of these side effects... Um, I just have this issue now. And, and like, I, I was all favour of choice. I, I am in favour of choice. Um, Me too. And yes. informed choice. Yes. A- and this is my issue. Why aren't women informed? It's, it seems there's a little bit of um, 
clandestine stuff going on here that, oh, don't tell them that because it might um, decrease sales. Don't worry about the health effects, <laughs> you know, unless it kills them because that's a legal issue. So we've got to protect ourselves against that. But hair loss is okay. Don't worry about it. What other sort of long-term effects do women run into when they're on the pill for longer than a certain period? Well, we don't really know. I mean, to be truthful, no one is researching long-term effects on dementia, for example, or things like that. Wow. You know, we have some long-term mortality studies, very roughly, mm. but I don't think people, scientists have really been asking those questions. You know, as to why women haven't been told the full story, I'm sure there's lots of factors. I think part of the issue... I think it's a couple of things. I think many people just genuinely want women to have access to effective contraception, and I, I can understand that. And they, they, that's why there's this sort of backlash whenever anybody questions the pill. It's like, oh, but, you know, teen, teen pregnancy or unwanted pregnancy is kind of anything but that. It's this attitude that it doesn't matter what women are suffering. Anything is better than unwanted pregnancies. And the, the thing is, it's the problem with that argument is there are other ways to prevent unwanted pregnancies. The pill is not the only method of contraception. I tell a little, I share a little story in my book, which is a, com a conversation which I've had, I'm sure, hundreds of times where I used to say to my patient, what do you use for birth control? And then I'd get the answer, oh, I don't use birth control. I use condoms. And I was like, oh, actually, that's a type of birth control. <laughs> like, you're, that's valid. You're, yeah. you're doing something. Yeah. So now I, now I rephrase it and say, how do you avoid pregnancy? And, of course, there are lots of different ways to do that. Yeah. So I just don't think that argument that, you know, women, this is the only option or we're going to have all these unwanted pregnancies, I just thought it doesn't hold water. Yeah. And then you've got issues, though, with various types of con contraception. H hence, the OCP was relied upon as being the most effective form of contraception. You know, condoms had a lesser one, um, dams and things like that. Gel. I'm not sure we have gels as well. No, no one uses those anymore. It, on its own, it's not very effective at all. But here's the thing, Andrew, the, the pill isn't even, it's not the most effective. It's got a typical use failure rate of 9%, which is actually pretty high. Whoa, I didn't but, know it was 9%. Yeah, I thought it was 2 the, Really? No, the, I think the perfect use is, is less than 1%. Right. What they call typical use. Every method has a typical use yeah. and perfect use. Yeah. The typical use, with typical use, that just means if you forget to take some pills, there will be an unwanted pregnancy. Women do fall pregnant on the pill. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a guarantee. The ones, the methods that have the highest efficacy rate are the IUDs or the intrauterine devices, of which there are, of course, two types. There's a hormonal one, which is sort of in the category of what we're talking about today, although I do think the hormonal IUD is arguably, arguably a bit better, but which for reasons we can go into, but then there's the copper IUD, which is non-hormonal, yeah. and they they have the two have similar, I think, effectiveness rates, and you know, very very high. Yeah. So you said let's discuss it. Let's go into it. <laughs> okay. The way it's different is that unlike all, literally almost all other methods of hormonal birth control, the hormonal IUD does not work primarily by suppressing ovulation. So it does potentially permit ovulation and the making of hormones and the making of progesterone, which remember I said is important for long-term health. According to Professor Geraldine Pryor, we need those doses of monthly doses of progesterone for general health. Mm. Potentially some women can still get that on the hormonal IUD. The research seems to suggest that 
it the hormonal IUD inadvertently does shut down ovulations for the first 12 months while the dose of the levonorgestrel drug is highest. And then over the next few years, the dose is lower and ovulation can be permitted. It works. It doesn't work by suppressing ovulation. It works by just locally preventing the buildup of the uterine lining and changing the cervical mucus or the cervical fluid. So one thing I like to say about the hormonal IUD is that and, I'm not, and I don't want to imply that I'm just a huge fan of it. I actually think there's way better methods than that. But I mean, just on the topic of the hormonal IUD, um, I say this. So on the pill, you bleed but don't cycle. And on the hormonal IUD, you cycle but don't bleed. Right. And what I, and what I mean by that is those bleeds that one gets on the pill are not real periods. They have nothing to do with an actual hormonal cycle or ovulation. Um, they're, they're meaningless, actually. There's no reason to bleed monthly on the pill. But in the case of the IUD, it's kind of the opposite. You may see no bleed, but you're still getting that cycling going on in the background. And also, I mean, on the topic of the hormonal IUD, just before we leave the topic, it is it reduces menstrual flow a lot, by about 90%. And so, of course, that can give great relief. It can give some relief for endometriosis as well. So it's... And again, I don't want to sound like I, I love it because it actually the hormonal IUD fared the worst in the big um, the big um, study of Denmark where they tracked 1.1 million women and established a pretty clear link between all methods of hormonal birth control and depression and anxiety. And of all the methods, actually the progestin-only methods like the IUD actually had the strongest correlation. So it's not without issues. It is mm-hmm. still levonorgestrel, the drug that is testosterone-like, so it potentially can still cause skin breakouts and mood and things like that, but it is still, in my thinking, different than yeah. other types. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the oral contraceptive pill, when is the OCP yeah. used to treat disease states? It's used for everything, Andrew. It's basically, as far as I can tell, it's kind of, I mean, I shouldn't laugh. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's like, it's like, so this, it's like this it's, one bit. I think there's a little bit of frustration in that laugh there, Lara. Yeah. It's just like, and I've just been having the craziest conversations with patients lately with like, you know, with every laying what their doctor said to them, it's like no matter almost no matter what is going on, what subtle thing or differences, almost no matter what is going on with a woman's cycle, the the existing mainstream solution is the pill. Mm. And it I mean, why doctors like it, like I can't really blame them for this, is that it erases Symptoms. Mm. It pretty much because it, which of course, because it shuts down the whole system. It's like if you're having a trouble with your car and you just don't like, drive it. You just you just <laughs> shut it all down and you drag it with a horse or something. Yeah. It's like just like nothing in that. You know, we can't fix it. It's too complicated. It's just no gone. Yeah, that's that's what the pill does. And to me, of course, as a naturopath, that just does not make sense because the problems haven't gone away. No. When a woman then stops the pill, her problems are still there, probably often amplified, most of the time it worsened actually by by having been on the pill. So she didn't gain anything in that way. And actually, most of my readers and patients, when they kind of find out that this was just a masking the problem kind of thing that actually probably worsened the problem in the long term, they are not happy about it. (laughs) There are a lot of... um, pretty angry young women out there right now mm. who sort of are just like as the penny drops and they think, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm taking a drug that 
you know, induces a kind of chemical menopause, and then I'm taking these drugs that are actually more like testosterone than my own hormone I'm supposed to have. Like they, yeah, it, uh, yeah. And yeah. As to why, I, I, it can't be long. I just think it really is going to start to shift and change. I hope. Yeah. So, what about the alternatives? Now we've discussed these a little bit, but let's go through them step by step. The dams, the the. Gels aren't okay, used so, in Australia. Yeah, the current anymore. landscape for non-hormonal birth control yeah. is well, there's the copper IUD, which I mentioned, yeah. which has pros and cons. I'll just, if it's okay, I'll refer to I have a blog post called "The Pros and Cons of the Copper IUD," and it, I, I think it's pretty balanced. You know, there's obviously good and bad things to that. It's certain, just to say for any of your listeners who might not know, because the IUD has not been popular the last few decades. Women have kind of lost awareness of what it is. Mm. It's a little copper and sort of plastic earring-shaped, earring-sized device that, that the doctor inserts through the cervix. It's not surgery. I just mentioned that because most of my young patients have no idea. You know, I think it must be a surgical procedure to have it inserted. It's just done in the doctor's office. And it can be removed anytime. You know, it's a fairly simple procedure to remove. So just that puts it in a little bit of context, I think. It's certainly something... You know, women could try. I had one patient say to me that she would like to try the copper IUD, but she then would not want to have to convince her doctor to remove it. I was like, "What?" A lot of the, a lot of my writing comes directly out of conversations yeah. like that. Where I said to her, "Okay, look, you know, you don't. There's no convincing involved. Like, it's your body. If you decide that device is not right for you, you just say to your doctor." Okay. I want it out. <laughs> we move. I want it out. That's my like. Obviously, that's her. You know, her choice. So just that could be a message for women as well. Yeah. So there's the the copper ID. Then there are condoms, which are great. You know, I don't know why. You know, it's a little bit of gray area. Their effectiveness is better or worse depending on how they're used yeah. and depending on the type of condom as well. Like the the effectiveness of them is going to be greatly increased with better quality condoms. There's a couple on the market now. There's one, a couple that I mentioned by name in my book. There's one brand called My One, I guess My One Fit Condoms, that male condoms that come in 60 different sizes. And by having a condom that actually fits, kind of like wearing shoes that actually fit, <laughs> you decrease the risk of slippage and yeah. breaking and all these things. Yeah. So it's just kind of a no, like when I heard about that, I thought, why is it 2018 and we're just learning about this, like having this now, that seems so obvious. And there's other cottons, a couple of brands that are, you know, claimed to be unbreakable. So there's definitely, I think if used properly, there's, they're, they're a, a valid method. And then there's, the fertility awareness methods, based methods, it's actually a plural because there's lots of different kinds, but where women track their fertility with a, with either temperatures, morning basal body temperatures, or cervical fluid or cervical mucus, or a combination of the two, and they need to they need to either know learn how to do that properly from an instructor, um, which can be done online a lot of the time these days, or there's a couple of um, devices out there that have a computer algorithm that does the calculations for women. I'll mention them by name because they're in the news a lot, and you know, I, I think women need to know it. I'm kind of a fan. Is, yeah. So there's one. There's one called Daisy, um, which is a little. Yeah, it's a little. Um, the computer's built right into the thermometers, so it kind of does everything. It gives a red, green, or yellow light depending on whether it's safe or not to have unprotected sex. 
on that day. Mm-hmm. And they claim they claim pretty high. Like they claim, I think, ninety nine point three currently. Wow. Percent effective. And then the other one is that was just in the news, been a lot in the news because it was just um, approved as contraception in the U.S. It's called Natural Cycles. Their efficacy is a bit lower, I think, than Daisy. I think it's fair to say that. They have different algorithms. So there's that. And that's the future, Andrew. I mean, I think those methods are just going to continue to improve and become more of them. And that is just to clarify, that is not the rhythm method. I mean, the rhythm method is a very old school, yeah. old style version of this. These are scientific in that they use objective measures of fertility, including temperature. Yep. So most experts and scientists agree that when they're done properly, you know, there's a there's a efficacy behind them. And then just going down the list is um, there's a new diaphragm, um, which is can be used without spermicide, which is nice. It doesn't have the toxic mm. effect. It has, a, it has a gel that it's used with. It's called Kaya. I, I believe it's available in Australia. And then, you know, there's withdrawal, which a lot, I just mentioned because a lot of women are still doing it. A couple are using that. Yeah. So I talk about some of the nuances and, you know, things to consider with withdrawal in my book. I'll let patients, I'll let readers or listeners just refer to that maybe. And then... Um, there's something coming, coming called basal gel, which I think is going to be a game changer. I'm holding out for this. They are um, it's being developed by a nonprofit organization in Berkeley in California, and it's a reversible non-hormonal birth control contraceptive for men. It's a one-time injection of gel into the vas deferens, which is the tube that connects the you know, the, the, puts the sperm into the semen. Mm-hmm. So they block that, yep. and then it can be reversed with a, another injection when a man is ready to have a baby. And I just feel like something like that is so much more modern. And, I mean, just, if you know, if it can be proven to be safe and effective, and not, obviously it doesn't affect men's hormones, you know, that, that could be a game changer because suddenly we're trying to avoid teenage pregnancies. You can say, right, well, let's just give the boys this... No, just safe procedure. One of the biggest risks, if you like, for, for unwanted pregnancy, the spur of the moment, moment action with uh, no other method of birth control. Condoms have their issues for males. You know, there's some males don't like the feeling of them and things like that. So, Although to that, I would just say tough. Yeah, get used to it. Let's keep going, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One thing about, you know, contraception for men, here's just a little factoid to consider. Men are fertile every day. Mm. Women are fertile only six days per month. So, you know, from that angle, why are women, yeah. <laughs> you know, hold, shouldering all the burden of contraception? Well, we'll go back to the 1960s and 50s. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, there's the yeah. whole uh, cultural thing of what men's and women's expectations were in society um, where yeah. it started. And it just seems to have flowed from there. You know, I, I, I can't, I seriously, I, I just think, wow, what a fantastic thing. If we can get a male contraceptive device, pill, not a pill, but, you know, the injection. Yeah. If that comes to fruition, wow, what a level of control that will give to society. I think so too. I think it'll certainly address that issue, you know, that concern about just for those, I guess, people who 
for whatever reason, don't have the wherewithal to either use a condom or, in the case of, you know, or take a pill daily, because mm. taking a pill daily is something to remember as well. And just on the topic of male contraception, I'm not, I would not be a fan of using some kind of hormonal method that suppressed men's own testosterone and then replaced it with, I mean, that's what they're looking at some drugs like that for men. And I just feel like I would be hypocritical to say that's fine for men, but <laughs> not okay for women. So, you know, I'd like to see non hormonal methods for both sexes. Yeah. Um, I, I think it'd be interesting, though, to see if there is a lot more investigation into potential side effects into men, uh, male hormonal issues, than there was for women. Uh, hormonal side effects, adverse events and things well, like that. Yeah. That got a lot of press, actually, last year when there was a trial where they were giving a progestin drug, so, hmm. you know, to suppress testicular function, and then a synthetic testosterone replacement, kind of similar, to basically the same as what we do for women. Yeah. And there were a lot of there were a lot of side effects. They, they can't. This is the what got pressed. They cancelled the trial due to the headaches and weight gain and depression that the participants <laughs> suffered. And of course, really? on social media, women made a lot of. You know, there was a lot of that got a lot of traction. But <laughs> women just saying, suck okay. it up. Yeah. Yeah. What about moving away from the OCP? If it's a, it's or if it's already established an established. Um, strategy for couples or women on their own. How do you get them to move away? How do you get them to regain their personal power and also their health and their normal normal cycles? It depends what their challenges are going to be. So if the if the if the main if I have no reason to think there are going to be any specific period problems, and the main challenge is just finding alternative contraception, then that's usually just a conversation about which of those of those methods that I just mentioned or a woman you know, wants to use. A lot of my patients are using DAISY, the kind of the the little computer fertility awareness method. Yeah. Divide some, get copper IDs, you know, it's just a variety of depending on preference. But then if there's another, it's another situation if a woman expects or maybe has tried to stop the pill before and then had post-pill acne, that's a really common one, or had pain come back, which, you know, if it's endometriosis, that's a, another situation. Or, you know, stop the pill and periods didn't come. Mm. And then there was that whole aspect. So and that's called the post pill syndrome, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So some people some people call it that as a broad term for all those different possibilities. I tend to look at it more um kind of focused on which of those different problems it is that's basically just a problem that is re emerging after being masked by the pill. It's mm. not specifically caused by stopping the pill, although there can be a, a temporary PCOS situation, which I did describe at the PCOS symposium. Yeah, I do. I am certainly seeing women who possibly had natural, normal cycles before, then went on the pill for 10 years and then come off and find they're in this situation of not not bleeding or not, you know, not having a, reg a regular menstruation mm. and then having these high levels of male hormones that basically qu immediately qualifies them for a diagnosis of PCOS. And yet, for at least for some of those women, that could just be a temporary situation as they transition back into their own cycles. And how do you help women along with, say, nutrition, herbs, maybe acupuncture? What other methods do you use in your armamentarium? to help normalize um, yeah. cycles. Yep. So my practice is I use some pretty simple things. I think maybe because I, I put some fairly simple things in my book, I really wanted these treatments to be ones that are available to 
you know, most women out there, not expensive, not complicated. But for example, let's use, let's use post-pill acne as the example. Yeah. If yeah. I know, because it's common, that's a really common reason for women to be trapped on the pill, basically, not be able to go off it, because every time they try, they get this, it's an explosion of skin breakouts like they've never seen before, even if they had skin problems before. That's a withdrawal from some of the other drugs called drosperinone and some of the kind of anti-testosterone types of drugs that are used in certain types of birth control. And that typically, not in every woman, but typically can have this skin adaptation kind of withdrawal phase, which the skin is usually at its worst about three to six months off the pill. So not immediately, but six months later, they might be thinking, oh my goodness, this is how it is now. You know, I really must need the pill. And so they retreat back to it. So if that's already happened, then I look at, I make a strategy while they're still on the pill. So it's best if, they're, if they see me before they come off but the next time, because then we, we do some simple anti-acne strategies such as um, no cow's dairy, less dramatically reduce sugar, um, zinc, take zinc, and sometimes I look at a couple of other nutritional supplements, but zinc is the big one. I'm mentioning zinc first and almost foremost because I hate, you know, I don't like people to lose sight of zinc when <laughs> pursuing some of the other ones. Yeah. And then we keep that in place and I reassure, I say, yep, this should, you know, reduce it quite substantially, you're probably still going to get some breakouts that can't be avoided, part of the post-pill process. But know that at about the six-month mark, that's pretty much as bad as it's going to get, and you're going to start to then just improve anyway. And even just that reassurance can be quite helpful for women because they have some sense of control, like some sense that they know what's going to happen. Mm. And do you tend to use, you know, like zinc B6 magnesium together or do you just go zinc on its own? I'm, I'm, I, I guess think, where, yeah. where I'm thinking is that, you know, the transferases and the hydrogenases and, sorry, dehydrogenases, the, the flow of the hormones, that sort of thing. Yeah, look, I, those three nutrients are a powerful combination. I will, I will grant you that. And yes, I think very often my patients are on a combination of magnesium, zinc, and vitamin B6. They're it's just so mechanism. simple. They're so simple, so cheap. Simple, exactly. And the different mechanisms why that's all working. I think zinc just specifically for the skin, you know, has a natural anti-antigen effect. It's antimicrobial. You know, it helps the immune system. It, it dries up skin oils, it, it reduces keratin, like it, it just has quite a nice, mm. um, and there's been a number of, a few, anyway, not a huge number, but some clinical trials of using high-ish dose zinc to treat skin problems, also to treat period pain, actually. There was a study a couple of years ago published in the Australian Journal of um, Obstetrics and Gynecology where they used, I think it was like 40 milligram zinc which was around the dose I would probably often give. Mm. And they found, they concluded that it was as effective for period pain as the pill. Wow. And then, what? And then, but get this, Andrew, what they said in that same uh, paper was, well, they're like, well, therefore, you know, we should look at this as treatment because it's cheaper than the pill. <laughs> that, was, that was their angle on it. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's cheaper than the pill. Also, it's heaps better than the pill because it doesn't, you know, shut yeah. down the woman's hormonal system. <laughs> so, so there's that as well. <laughs> yeah. 
What about um, uh, certain uh, vitamins? Like, for instance, uh, I think thiamine. There was a, a now. This was more to do with dysmenorrhea, not uh, re- yeah. not cycling and things like that. There's one large trial on it. Yeah, I've heard about vitamin B1 for puritan. I haven't personally, like as a clinician, I haven't used that a lot, but not because I don't believe that it works. It actually sounds great. It's just I have other things that also really work, so I tend to. I, for period pain, I tend to go again the no cows dairy. Mm. It's kind of a re- repetitive thing here, and zinc and magnesium, <laughs> vitamin B six. Yeah, it does sound a little bit repetitive here, but I mean it could be similar. I think yeah, vitamin B one definitely. It wouldn't surprise me if um, actually was, yeah, if there were some formulas out there, period pain formulas that have all of those nutrients combined. Any uh, commonly used herbs? Are there any ones that you tend to lean towards in your re- in your repertoire? Herbal medicines or nutritional yep. oh, both. supplements. Both. I do I do do a lot of kind of single dosing of like a zinc, like a nice kind of thirty milligram zinc capsule or you know, in liquid zinc. I use a all the variety of magnesium powders. Um for as far as herbal medicine goes, I I guess the main one for this type of work is I do look at some of the there's quite a few on the market now, at least three good ones amongst the practitioner-only brands of um, peony and licorice gotcha. combination for, yep. for PCOS. Yep. And it, it has an androgen-lowering effect to promote ovulation. It really is a nice combination. So I tend to give that in tablet form, but that, I mean, certainly the naturopaths out there are giving it in liquid form, which arguably would be even more potent. So. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you yeah. cover all of this in your book, yes. the Period Repair <laughs> Manual. Which I've got to yeah. say is it, like it's seminal. Should be a text in all naturopathic courses. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, it, it's it's important. It's written from expert from an expert angle who cares, and somebody who's got a lot of expertise in finding out not just what does work, but what doesn't work, but also the sort of issues yeah. that prop up along the way for women and how you can get around that. You know, i.e., the things when things go wrong, and that's what you effectively yeah. do. I, I really do um, take my hat off to your yeah. work. You've done a lot for not just women, but couples um, and uh, yeah. along their babies, I would say, as well. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah, I wrote the, I wrote Period of Prayer Manual for, for lay people, well, for, for women, just ordinary women around yeah. the world. And But it has been great to see how useful it, it is for clinicians as well and naturopaths and also doctors. Like I said, I actually had a few doctors. To, it just what it gives for a lot of clinicians, I think, is a, a framework to start to think about things and then they can still slot in other treatments and your know, other expertise that they have, they can slot that under some of these ideas of, for example, like some of the, one of the main ideas in my book is that um, ovulation is important. <laughs> you know, that when we're putting on our t- detective hat to work out almost any kind of period problem, we need to be thinking about, okay, what are the obstacles to ovulation here? So that's just a you know, a good starting place for yeah. a lot of different clinical thinking. Yeah. Lara, thank you so much for taking us through this very political, very hot issue, or it's a constant hot issue, but it's it, yeah. a- along with anything that goes with women's hormones, it's sort of like shoved under the carpet. A, a recent interview that I did, the interviewer said, oh, well, you know, I guess it's all very complicated. And, uh, and my response was, nope, <laughs> nope, it's not. It's not that complicated. <laughs> this is my key message. It's actually quite simple. Yeah. Lots of aspects of this are actually quite simple. This is a disservice that we've done to women to think that women's health is mysterious and complicated and in the too hard basket and only for the gynecologist to understand it. You know, when, my key message is that women can understand their own bodies and certainly natural clinicians can step in and help them to do that as well. It's 
we have to because they're not getting that from most doctors and women deserve better. Thanks for joining us on FX Medicine, Lara. Great, thank you. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was brought to you by the Period Repair Manual by Lara Bryden. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.